this week. And, um, and so it's on iTunes. You just go and uh, I don't exactly sure. Go to look. Harvest Curtains, as in like the curtains you put. So go just put that in the search engine of iTunes, Harvest Curtains. It'll pop up. She was, he won't say this, but I'll tell you she was top four uh, this week, all week long on iTunes for a new album. She was ahead of Chris Tomlin, just saying. And uh, so anyway, I'll say that she never would. So anyway, it was, uh, it was fun. So, hey, we've been talking for the last several weeks and, and for the next couple of weeks about this study that we're in called God's at War. And the idea, it's really simple, that there are, there are things clamoring uh, for the primary place in our lives, other than Jesus, right? It's like, it's like when we gave our lives to Jesus, it was like a marriage covenant saying, you know, Jesus, I commit to you and forsaking all others will be faithful to you as long as we will live for eternity, right? And so there's this beautiful picture in scripture of this marriage covenant that we, that we establish or that really Jesus comes and establishes with us. And the idea is we forsake all other lovers and we, we're faithful only to him. If the picture is then that this God's at war means that there are other lovers. We call them idols. Other lovers that are clamoring for the primary place in our life. They're clamoring for our affection. And so in each of our lives, there are primary lovers, and I would be, it'd be helpful for you to name them, primary lovers that are always clamoring for the, the, the priority and the preeminence in your life. I say it'd be helpful to name it because it would help you in your marriage relationship with Jesus, right, in this covenant relationship, to know the other lovers that try to get in the place of Jesus. And what happens is that's this idolatry, it's idols. And so last week we looked at the gods of power, little g, gods of power, gods of power, the gods of, uh, excuse me, gods of success was last week. Last week, gods of success, primarily looking at money. And I said to you, how do you gauge success? Like at the end of the day, how do you gauge the success? That today was a successful day. And I said, I want you to take that thing and I want you to put it on my forehead. Because this thing on my forehead became like this visual thing for you that when, as we talk about success, we said success is a good thing to desire success. We see it in scripture, but it can become this place of priority and preeminence in our life where our personal success specifically, we looked at money, that those who have money are successful and therefore we clamor for it so that we can be successful. And we said there's something about success in our life that becomes an idol, another lover that clamors from behind us saying, why don't you love me more? Why don't you make me the priority and the focus of your life? And we said each of us, well, and I kind of, I can remember some of the things on my list. We said maybe success for you is obedient children, especially out to eat, right? That your children were more obedient, like, ah, oh, it was a successful moment because our children were obedient. Look at those poor suckering souls over there, right? This whole thing. Or maybe it's the success literally of, of power and influence, right? This power and influence that people recognize you as being more powerful and having greater influence, and they kind of put you on a pedestal. Or maybe we said that you're one of those people that you gauge your own success by the success of your children in sports or in school, and you literally think you're more successful and you're better than someone, if you're honest, because your children just happen to be smarter and they happen to just be given a God-given talent to be better at sports. 
But we put ourselves on this other pedestal over here. Or maybe we said it was friends. Because you have a large network of friends, you deem that that's success for you. And so those things, they clamor for our affection and clamor for our attention. They become idols in our lives. This week we want to shift gears into the gods of power. I kind of already named it. Gods of power. And that, that, that we clamor and we long for and we can make power and influence specifically this primary idol in and our lives. So let me kind of tell you a story. I didn't do this at the nine o'clock service. That I forgot, but I'm going to tell you this story for me because I think it's funny. One of those kind of the first kind of real taste of power and influence in a moment with people, especially who were older than me. I was about 22 years old. My dad had uh, was he owned this boat business. He still does up in Gainesville, Georgia, right? TNS Marine. And and so this week he we had talked and we had set it up where he was going to go to Brazil on a mission trip. And so he said. Said, hey, Steve, I was living in Athens at the time. He said, hey, would you come down? There's this big boat auction down on Holiday Marina Road. Some of you have been there at Holiday Road. I want you to come down. I want you to be my representative at this boat auction. I said, awesome, right? He said, I've already done my homework. I've gone here, so I'm going to give you a cheat sheet, right? It's going to list every boat. It's your model, and you're going to, you're, I've already done all the homework. I'm going to give you a, you know, a, a, a low-end price and a top-end price, and you buy it somewhere in between that, okay? And so I show up that day, and I go in and sign my name. I get my, uh, I get my badge, right? And there's hundreds of people here, right? Hundreds of people, and I walk in, and listen, I'm 22 years old walking into a boat auction. I'm wearing cut-off jean shorts because it was cool back then. Don't worry, right? Jorts were cool, okay? Jorts were cool. I had, the, I had the T-shirt going on. I had my flip-flops, and I had my Georgia hat pulled down real low. And I come in, and, like, I'm the last guy that anyone's going to pay attention to coming to a boat auction, right? So I come in, and literally, there's a guy named Lloyd, Lloyd who's over here. He's in charge, and he knows me, okay? He knows I'm the S of TNS, okay? I mean, his mom. I'm important, but nobody else, right? So I'm sitting there, and they first boats this little 16-foot aluminum bass tracker, but the 50-horsepower Mercury on the back, right? And so I'm sitting there, and, I'm, and people are, like, getting in front of me because they don't think I'm important, and they don't think I have any power or influence in the moment, right? So all of a sudden, he says, I just go, I go, 2,500 bucks. And everybody goes like this, looking around, right? I'm starting it. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live the role, okay? And so I'm like, $2,500, right? And so it just goes on. It starts going from there. And by the end of that boat, I had won the boat. And people all started going like this, looking like, who? And it was this thought, who's the weird kid in the cutoff jean shorts, right? So we go to the neck. And so that happens. This guy comes over and is like, hey. I'll buy that boat from you. I said, no, you won't, right? And so we keep on going to the next boat. We go to the next boat. I put my hand up. Boom. Bought the next boat. All of a sudden, after 15 boats that I purchased, I have a following, literally, of 50 men who are like, how much are you going to ask for that one? Are you going to buy the next one? Oh, my gosh, this is so great. Hold on. Like, and, like, they're clamoring for my affection. I mean, literally. Like, they want me to put their hand. They want, like, I put my hand on their shoulder. Like, oh, yeah. It was so bizarre, right? This 22-year-old kid in George and a white t-shirt and flip-flops and a hat pulled down, all of a sudden became the toast of the auction. I mean, literally, everyone's following me. I go to the next boat, and they're like, how much can I get for this one? What's, what's the starting bid? And it's, it's hilarious, right? And I, and I get done, and all of these people are like, who are you, <laughs> right? Who are you, and how, can, I, can I be your friend type stuff, right? And I'm just like, this is so weird. And so I walk, and I literally, I write a check for a quarter of a million dollars, right? I look at the lady, I said, can you write this for me? Because I have no idea how to write this, right? It was this whole bizarre thing. 
In the moment, this kid all of a sudden has power and influence on someone else's checkbook. By the way, it's always the best, right? But this whole moment, and I'm like, oh, I love this, right? I love this. Because there's something inside of us, and each human being, man, that we love this idea of having power and influence, don't we? And power and influence, it can be a very good thing. In fact, when we look at Scripture, there are three different expressions of power expressed from the old, from Genesis to Revelation. The first would simply be God's power. Like you've read those Bible stories where life is happening and all of a sudden God intervenes. No one else does anything to earn it, to deserve it. God just goes, here I come. Right? It's like the this like the water hose just boom goes off and whatever happens, right? You see the power of God. And then the next one is to be the power of God through people. That's the Greek word dunamis. In dunamis, we see it both in Old Testament and New Testament, right? Old Testament, the prophets of God who are used mightily of him. His power flowing through them. Human beings doing miraculous things. We see it in the life of Jesus, and we see it in the apostles' life, the disciples, don't we? They're going from place to place in the power of God, doing miracles and casting out demons and raising the dead. And you know, at one point, literally, the Dunamis, the power of God is so strong upon Peter, he walks by someone, his shadow touches them, and the person's immediately healed. This is the this is power, y'all. This is influence to the point that when Peter came into a town and, and did the miracle, people bowed down to him thinking he was a god. And we see he goes, No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Everyone stand up, or at least turn your gaze and your affection and your worship and praise to the one through me who is Jesus the Christ. He's the one, right? And so we see this dunamis power flowing through the disciples. We see dunamis power, guys, still flowing through us. That's the point of Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, wait for the promise of my Holy Spirit. For when he comes upon you, you will be clothed with power. And you have witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we see it again all the way through to the very end. This expectation of the power of God flowing through his children, flowing through his disciples. The third power we see exhibited in Scripture, and it's a good thing, is, is authority, right? Kings and queens and rulers and all those types of people, right? Which Romans, Romans tells us very clearly whether we like this verse or not. God puts them in power. And so we had this whole dynamic going down, right, of power being expressed in Scripture. And it is a good thing. Power being released. In fact, God says, I want you to wait for my power. It's my gift, right? It's the gift of my Holy Spirit. So, so listen, I don't know about you, but my birthday's in 12 days, and I'm going to get, get gifts, and they're going to be good gifts, and I'm going to open them, I'm going to use them, I'm going to celebrate them, right? And so the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to us. It's, and He comes, and what does He do? He comes with power. And he convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. And he speaks to us every day reminders of everything that Jesus has spoken. And so we celebrate power and we celebrate influence. We see it historically, don't we? You go to your classes when you were back in, remember, a long time ago when we used to be in school. And we would sit down with those long history books and you'd have that test on Friday. What would you do? You would cram the night before and try to memorize and regurgitate about a hundred names 
a hundred dates and the importance of who they were in history. Why? Because each of us understand, each of us understand that people of power and influence, they change history. And we celebrate them. And so the nature then of power and of influence is good when it has its proper place in our lives as being secondary to Jesus. If you read through in fact, that, that, that story of Peter's a prime example, don't worship me, don't celebrate me, it has nothing to do with me. Listen, it's just a good thing in my life. The primary thing is Jesus. In fact, I want you to take your gaze and your affection and the greatness that you think that I possess and spending a quarter, of a, a quarter million dollars on a bunch of boats. I don't even have any idea how I got that money, right? I want you to recognize it's not about me, it's about someone over here. It's Jesus. It was my dad for me, but it's Jesus over here. That's this healthy boundary for us of keeping Jesus the primary thing. And so it's a good thing when it's a secondary thing and Jesus is the primary. We said anything that's good can become an ultimate thing. And when it's a good thing, it's good. When it's an ultimate thing, it's a God and an idol in our life. And so we then struggle in this tension then, right? Because we've been created with a great desire for power and influence. We love that. In fact, how many of you could, listen, it's a good thing, but we all have seen it abused, haven't we? We've seen people with power and with influence abuse that power and influence and affect people that we love. And many of us have been affected by it ourselves. In fact, if I were to go through today and say, tell me a story within church for you of how you may have been abused by someone's power and their overwhelming influence in life. Some of you go, uh, right, because the church is full of power hungry people. Who want to exert that and abuse people. All because they want to make sure they're most powerful and most influential. And so for us then, the reality is that we are aware of the goodness of power and influence. But we're also probably experienced when power and influence has become an idol in someone's life. And it's impacted us or ones that we love in a negative way. One story I think that fits this reality well in Scripture is taken from Acts chapter 8. You can take your Bibles and turn there if you want to. So this will be starting in verse 9. It's the story of Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer, starting in verse 9 of chapter 8 of Acts. Turn your Bibles, take your smartphones, look there, look on your neighbor's Bible. I encourage you to bring your Bible. It's good to have it with you always. If you don't have it, though, feel free to look on the screen. Verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then Peter and John placed their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving the laying on uh, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Hey, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and that you are captive to sin Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, just kind of get the big picture. When I first read this, this the other day, I thought, I mean, just in preparation, I thought to myself, this is Oz the Great and Powerful. You know, if you've watched that most recent movie, right? Oz the Great and Powerful. And this is kind of the, the thought that I had about Simon the Sorcerer, right? That he is this charlatan, right? He is this guy who is producing fear. And, he, and in that fear and the things that he's doing, and who knows what's causing this. I don't know if it's demonic in nature, if it's just a sleight of hand like a magician. I have no idea what's going on in him. But there's something that's so powerful seeming that people are following him. And in that following, then, he is a person, listen, a person of power and a person of influence. And in that power and influence, and this is an important word for the morning also, he has control. And in his power and influence, he has control of the people, right? They literally, the people are, are in the city, they are amazed, right? They give him attention and they exclaim, this man, is, this man is rightly called the great Oz, the powerful one, right? This great and powerful, the great power of God. And so in the moment, I want you to see is that Simon, in this world in which he lives, he really truly does have power, he has influence, and he has control of the people. So the first lie, then we look at three lies we believe about power. The first lie this morning is that power gives us control. Power gives us control, right? In this story, Simon He has power. He has influence. And in that power and influence, he has control over the people. They follow him. They listen to him. They believe him. And so in that, right, in this, he has this control. And there's something about power, influence, and our having control in situations whether it's we have control over people, over situations, things at work, things in, in, in our homes, things at school, whatever it may be, that there's something that's intoxicating about power and influence and having control in situations in people's lives. There's something, listen, as I sat there, right, and got to boat number three and number four, and people are just like, oh, my gosh. And they're like, oh, I mean, people are shaking, like, oh, my gosh, this is so great. Who's this kid, right? There's like, I'm like, oh, there's something intoxicating, power and influence, and people thinking that I have control in the situation. Man, it's intoxicating in the moment. So, so Simon, he lives in this intoxication. But what I would say this morning, and I want you to hear this, I believe that control is the great lie about power. I believe it's a faulty supposition that we face in life. That if only I could control my world, if I can control my life, then my life would be 
manageable. And as human beings, we prefer having control to not having control. Why? Because it means that we are in charge. We make the rules. We tell people where to go and no one can tell us what to do or where we need to go. Right. We think that power and influence giving us control. It gives us freedom. And we love this. It's intoxicating. But I want to say this, the harder that we try and control things, the more out of control we will feel. I'll say that again. The harder we try and control things, the more we feel out of control. Ecclesiastes, this great book of wisdom that I encourage you to read. Like if you think the Bible is really hard to understand, just go read Ecclesiastes. It's pretty straightforward and direct in a book of wisdom. You should all read it. Go read the Proverbs. Super simple, super practical. And so the writer here who, who is speaking, what I would say is this godly wisdom, this wisdom of heaven says this. About, about this, this, this power and influence is when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that's done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. That's what he said. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun or on the earth. No one can comprehend, have understanding of what goes on under the sun, despite all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning, even if the wise claim they know they cannot really comprehend it. What the writer is coming and saying, listen, he said, listen, I know that you like to have control. I know that you because control, what does it do? Control brings order. How many of you live every day trying to avert disruption and chaos in your life? Because, and the idea is, if I can order my life because of the control that I have, then nothing will get in. No disruption, no chaos can happen in my life. The greater our power, the greater influence we think, the greater our control will be in life. But this isn't true. Because what happens is this, the greater our power, the greater our influence, the greater our frustration when disruption and chaos enter our world. Do you know people who try to control their kids, try to control their spouse, they try to control their work, they try to control everything? Are they the most just disappointed and frustrated people in the world? Most of the time, yes. Because here's the point the writer's getting at. I've got in Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 14. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But, this is huge, when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Do you like that? Because basically what it's telling us is this. There's a, listen, Ecclesiastes 3, it's the birds. There's a time and a season for everything. Turn, 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 right? There's, there's a time for death. There's a time for life. There's a time for this and a time for that. And the whole point is there's order in life, but none of us can understand it. None of us control it. None of us can get our head around it. The wise try. The wise try to have control and get an understanding and a meaning for all of this stuff. But you can't. Why? Because it's God's 
and who's in control. It's Jesus who is in control. And if he gives us an understanding where we have complete clarity, we have complete control, then we become something real simple, self-reliant. Something I want you to consider. Something I want you to consider. Maybe some disruptions may be God's gift to us to move us from self-reliance and to control to need for him. I mean, if you ever read your Bible, Jesus, God moves all the time to cause disruption in the people of Israel because of their sin. And I don't know about you, but I know people who get caught in sin and idolatry and self-reliance today. Why would God not love us enough to cause disruption out of his mercy for us to return us back to a need for him? Because in our culture, self-reliance leads us to desiring order in our life. And the only way we find order is by having control of every situation. We claim so often that it's Satan or the enemy who's moving when in reality it's just Jesus who loves us. You need to wrestle through this. Power gives us control. And I would say the people who try to control life the most are the least happy and most frustrated people in the world. Because I don't know about you, but every life is marked by disruption and by chaos because we live in a fallen world. Second thing, power, the second lie we believe is that power is ours indefinitely. As if we think we now own it, that it belongs to us indefinitely. Verse 12 and 13, right? says, but when they believed Philip, excuse me, when they believed Philip the Sumerians and the followers, specifically when the followers of Simon the sorcerer believed Philip, he proclaimed, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed, was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Real simple. In this moment, Simon goes from being Simon the Great, the one who has power and influence and control of people, to a simple follower. He becomes a follower. Let's just be really honest real quick. How difficult in your life is it to lose power, influence, and control? If you have children who have reached at least 18 and have left your home, you get it. Because you're used to having authority, power, and control, and all of a sudden one day they step up, they speak back, and you realize you are an adult. And you're like, duh, right? And it's so difficult. It's overwhelming. And this is just a simple, a simple picture that I think we all get. That this is an understanding of this power, influence, and control. We all prefer it. We all prefer it. But in this moment, Simon has completely lost it. And so what happens with us when we lose power and influence and control? Think about every scenario of life. What happens? Are we okay with it? Or we're like, hey, this is awesome. Let's celebrate the losing of this thing that we really enjoyed. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. No, we're probably just like Simon. Simon comes down in verse 17, says, Then Peter and John placed their hands on all of them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And Simon goes, Aha! When Simon saw the Spirit was given to laying on of hands, he offered them money and said, Hey, 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 listen, it'd be awesome. Just give me this ability so that I can lay my hands on people too, so 
they can have the Holy Spirit. And it sounds so cavalier and so noble until all of a sudden Peter, in this gift of discernment, this word of knowledge, looks into Simon's heart and says, May your money, 20, verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And that phrase right there, I man, it just throws me to the ground because your heart is not right before God. I have to ask God every day, Jesus, can I ever ask to have a large church? Because I'm not sure my motives would actually ever be pure in that asking. So God, your will be done at vintage as you've already spoken in heaven. And when you get, when you would have clarity about what that is, share with me. But until then, please let me live in ignorance, God, because I want you to control that because I know my heart is prone to, to want to know and to find, right, to have power in our size. And so every day I'm sitting here going, God, I want my heart to be pure before you in the things that I have power and influence and control in. In the moment, Simon reveals the darkness of his heart. But if we're completely honest, we understand where he's coming from, don't we? He lost that. He wants it back. He sees that he can receive it from this guy. And so he does whatever he can to get it. How many of you have done anything you can to get back the power and the influence and the control in your life that was taken away? And in doing so, you expose the darkness of your heart and maybe even abuse somebody and walked on somebody to get there. You don't have to raise your hand. Don't worry. Simon's motives are not pure. Because he wanted something that God could only give. He had lost it. Why? Power was not his indefinitely. Why? Because God disrupted him out of his mercy and his love for him. And would not be willing to give it back until his heart was right before him. Or is your heart right before God in the areas of power and influence and control the third thing, the third third lie that we believe is that power satisfies us. That power and influence and control satisfies us. I think this is so just so perfect right here in verse twenty two and twenty four. So so Peter says, "Repent of this wickedness, right? Turn away from the wickedness of your heart. Pray to the Lord, and the hope He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see, listen." This is it. Verse 23. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon said, please pray for me. These things won't happen, right? I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. I want you to recognize this bitterness and captivity to sin did not happen at the moment of his baptism. He had been living in sin and in bitterness For a long, long time, meaning in the midst of his power, in the midst of his influence, in the midst of the height of his control, Simon is bitter and captive to sin and ultimately dissatisfied with who he is and where he is in life. Why? Because like we said last week, like we said last week, eternal people can never be satisfied by anything other than what it is eternal. And this power and this influence and control, it's not eternal in nature. Therefore, as human beings, we can never be satisfied by it. 
It's like all sin. How many of you know, man, sin is really fun for a moment, maybe even for a long moment. I mean, like it's like, man, this is so much fun. But we find ourselves in time after that season's up slowly degenerating in that. So all of a sudden that thing that's satisfied no longer satisfied, even the more we give ourselves to it. And the thing is why? Because it's not eternal in nature. And so we think power will satisfy us. We get it. It's awesome for when I sat there. I was like, yeah, let me watch. I'm going to write this big old check over here. Right? You see that in that last boat that I bought? Boom, right? Awesome. You will, you, you know, you wish you were me, Steve, the great and powerful boat buyer, right? Living in the moment. It's so great. So fantastic. I like, I'll, I'll drive out and these people will have no idea who I am will never see me again. Power and influence, right? It satisfies the moment, but it did not carry me through much longer. And the idea is the same here. Power does not. Listen, the unfortunate, the unfortunate uh, reality is this. Chasing after power, influence, and control, it is like chasing after the wind. It's impossible to get hold of, and it always leaves us feeling frustrated and empty and dissatisfied. The truth about life is this. Power does not bring control, and it does not ultimately satisfy. If our attempt is to make it the primary thing in our life, it will always leave you disappointed and dissatisfied. So the question, and you could probably answer this yourself, so what would have been the best thing for Simon to do? Like if you could have, if you could have, like, if you could have been his disciple there in the moment, Peter, I got it. Don't worry, bro. I got him, right? You come in, Simon, sit down, man, right? First and foremost, let's not call you Simon the Sorcerer anymore. That's probably not good, okay? But let's talk about the next thing. The thing that we want to do is this. The best thing that you could do, number one, is just celebrate the fact that all of your power and your influence and your control is gone because you've gone down into death and you've been raised to new life with Jesus. So let's just celebrate that you're no longer Simon the Great and Powerful. Okay, and that's the first thing you want to do. Okay, the second thing you want to do is that you want to look at Jesus and say, hey, it's not about me anymore, but it's all about you. I submit myself to you. And the third thing is then just wait patiently and see what God will do, because when his Holy Spirit comes, he will come with power. But you have to make sure that your heart is pure. See, every single one of us could give the right answer. But how many of us actually walk in that wisdom in our own everyday life? We're very, very good as Pharisees at telling people what they need to do to get their life right with the idols in their own heart, aren't we? Aren't you really good? Listen, for those husbands and wives, I'm going to pick on the wives, and I always pick on the husbands. Wives, aren't you really, really good at telling your husband what's wrong with him and what he needs to fix? Aren't you? Don't you pick out the things that if you just do this, he'd be the best husband, and the best father ever. Do you do we look at the own the, the speck in our own eye or the log that's there? The idea, it's just a Bible verse, but you don't know. Right? Don't point the speck in your brother's eye while there's a big old fat log in your own. If you haven't read that before. Right. So this whole dynamic going down. We know so well what Simon should do. But in his life, right, power become an idol. Let them empty. He's in this place. And so many of us, we wrestle with the other lover back here of power, influence, because we want to have control and order and, and order in our life. So here's a thought to consider. We cannot control God, right? We all get an amen on that. We cannot control God. 
How many of you know you, as hard as you may try, you cannot control others? How many of you also know that you can't control, I don't care how, I don't care if you fast and you pray till you're blue in the face and just believe God, you can't control what happens in life, right? The good or the bad. You can't control those things because God is Lord, not you, right? You can't control these things. Therefore, we should stop trying to do so. We should stop trying to do so. Instead, we should try and control the only thing we can control, our willingness to seek God in the midst of seeming chaos and disorder of life. In Christ, we actually find what I would call the paradox of power expressed. It's the paradox of the gospel. I think these things, we put them on the screen. Is that right? These three things. Write them down. Strength is found in weakness. Strength is is found in weakness. Listen, do you not, in Revelation, it says, Behold the Lion of Judah. And it says the small lamb, Jesus, comes out. He, he totally turns the reality and understanding of power upside its head. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the upside-down understanding of power. Power is expressed in a lion. Power is expressed in a lamb, biblically, right? It's the, the paradox of strength. Strength is found in weakness, Control for you and you and you. Control is found in my life in weakness. Before God every day saying, God, I'm terrible at controlling situations. I'm weak before you. God, would you move in power? Because I can't do it. Only you can. And then control, the third one, is found in dependency. As you try to rely upon yourself and your own strength, you will become frustrated and disappointed in life and disillusioned even in who God is. Because you're going to say, well, God, where were you? When in reality is because you took control of your own situation. Control is found in dependency. And power then is found in surrender. Power is found in surrender. So my question for each of us, including myself, and I've been wrestling this all week because I've been studying it all week. How are you doing with the idols of power, the idols of influence, and the idols of control? Are you striving with all of your energy to create order against chaos and disruption only to be satisfied when disruption and chaos happens and you blame the enemy because you've been trying to be so self-reliant and understand the future and know everything's going to happen because you need to know it so that you can control your life and have order? Are you just waking up every day saying, God, I can't control anything and I'm really bad at order and I come in weakness, I come in dependency, I come in need and I bow down to you today and say, if you do not show up, I'm royally, royally in trouble. All of us clamor for power, for influence, and control. Every single one of us. It can be good. It can be good. See, John the Baptist expressed that well. Let's get his story, then we're done. He's, he's the man. He's the man with the checkbook and the boats and the quarter million dollars. He's the one going to the auction. He's over here baptizing people in the Jordan River, right? He's like a man's man. He's got like camel cloth, camel hair on. He's eating crickets, man. He's like eating honey. He's like, dude, he don't need nothing. He's like, you need some water? Here's the Jordan River, all the mud and everything. 
right? He's just like living the life. He's a man's man. He's tough, right? He's tough. He's like, he's, the kings and the kings come out and the rulers, you brood of vipers, you idiots. I know who you are, right? You better repent, right? God's on my side. This is a great thing. And all these disciples are with us saying, this is fantastic. We're with the winning guy, right? We have power. We have influence. We have control because John's on our side, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And what happens? All of John's disciples are like, oh, what happened? We've lost our following, right? They've all gone to a different church on Sunday. What happened? Do they have better worship? Is it better preaching? They have better coffee? What's the deal? What's going on here? Oh, John, they've left. What's happening? And John has a crossroad moment. Either he gets frustrated because he's lost his power and his influence and his control, or he says something like he said. Jesus must increase. He must increase. And we must decrease. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking by your grace and your mercy that you would not allow this word to go in one ear and out the other. Because each of us, God, we have a distance in our relationship with you in the area where we allow power and influence to have too much control. And God, you're not okay with that. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the chaos and the disruption you allow every day in some form or fashion to make us aware of our desperate need for you. And Father, we just declare this morning, God, that we are desperately in need of you in every area. We need help raising our children. We need help with our parents. We need, we, need, we need help in our job. We need help, God, in our marriages. We need help in our church life. We need help with our neighbors. Jesus, we're desperate. We need you to move, God. We, we've tried to control, create orders. It's not working, Jesus. Would you awaken us like you did Simon to your power and your influence as the this wise man understood in Ecclesiastes, you would awaken us to your wisdom. And that, Father, we'd, because God is so true, those who, have the, those who have the least control, they have the greatest freedom in life because there's nothing that ultimately they're in charge of. That's what you desire for us, to release so much control to you. That, Father, we then walk in freedom, not bound by disappointment and frustration. Father, we just confess this morning, practically getting there is so hard because we also have responsibility. And now I didn't talk about that at all this morning, our responsibility in this. But God, I pray this week that you would speak to each of us about this tension we live in of your grace and your power and your influence and your control and our responsibility in that. Help us, God, to be obedient to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.